Hello, everyone. I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today, I'm speaking with Julius Wachtel, the author of Stalin's Witnesses, a novel about the 1937 Moscow show trial. As those of you who have listened to my interview with Julian Berengout know, Russian history is my specialty, too. So I have lots of questions for Julius, who goes by the name Jay. Stalin's Witnesses fictionalizes the life of Vladimir Rom, a Soviet spy who served as, among other things, Izvestia's first correspondent to Washington, D.C. It asks difficult but intriguing questions. What causes a government to force a loyal public servant to bear false witness against its own high-ranking officials, in the process knowingly incriminating himself? And what role do ordinary citizens play in the construction and maintenance of such a system? When the book opens, Vladimir has just been arrested by the Soviet political police, the NKVD, which stands for People's Commissariat of Internal Affairs. He has begun a diary. Lubyanka Prison, 27 November 1936. My cell is a narrow rectangular affair, three meters wide by four meters in length, with a stained concrete floor, rude masonry walls, and a sturdy steel door bearing the disquieting imprint of the labor camp where it was manufactured. There is one small window. High and out of reach, it is so encrusted with dirt that little light enters. My sole source of illumination is a single bulb that burns dimly around the clock, something that was at first bothersome but to which I am growing accustomed. I sleep, or try to, on a rude metal cot with a thin, badly stained mattress. Into the little space that remains, they wedged a battered old desk and a flimsy chair, probably cast-offs from some petty bureaucrat's office. What function they might serve eludes me as I have been denied the right to correspond. I leave for last my lodging's most unpleasant feature, a metal pail euphemistically referred to as the honeypot, which generates a stench so unpleasant that during my first days in this hellhole it was difficult to breathe. Over the years, I have heard tales of how prisoners adapt. Now that I've joined their ranks, I'm not sure whether getting used to such indignities is something to celebrate. But I refuse to despair. I've done nothing wrong, and before long this horrible injustice will be sorted out. I was notified of my reassignment three months ago, in August, while posted as his Vestia correspondent to Washington. There was little to suggest that anything was amiss. All who serve the Soviet Union are well aware of the pretext that Moscow's center employs to recall officers who have fallen out of favor, like the sudden illness of a spouse or an accident involving one's child. And such events aren't normally celebrated with elaborate champagne receptions, goodbye gifts, and congratulatory speeches by colleagues and well-wishers. And now to tell us how Vladimir got himself into this particular pickle, let us welcome Jay Wachtel. Hi, Jay. Hello. Uh, today we're talking with Julius Wachtel, uh, the author of Stalin's Witnesses, and he has agreed to join us from Fullerton, California. And Jay, uh, tell us something about yourself and your. Uh, let's start with you. Uh, how you, wh- where you came from, how you learned about Russian history, and um, what you're doing today. Okay. Well, I suppose I can start at the beginning. Um, when I was uh, 10 years old, uh, my family uh, emigrated to the U.S. from uh, Argentina. And uh, my parents, uh, uh, well, were Jewish, and my parents had gone through the Holocaust. Uh, my mother had been in a uh, concentration camp in Poland, and uh, she was uh, liberated by, uh, by the Soviet army. Uh, my father was... Uh, was Hungarian. He was in forced labor, eventually escaped. Um, they wound up in Argentina. And that, that was a fairly common uh, path for uh, displaced Jews after the war, winding up in South America and then making their way, you know, to the West. So anyways, when uh, I was 10, we, uh, we got to the, uh, to the U.S. And um, I was raised during the Cold War. Uh, I think you remember the Cold War, right? Uh, I do. I was. I started taking Russian, in fact, because the Defense Department was uh, monitoring um, Russian language communication, so they were funding high schools to teach Russian. 
Well, when I was in high school uh, during the Cold War, uh, we were always expecting that the big bad bear was going to drop the big one on our heads. I think you can remember that, too. And um, we had drop drills every week uh, in school. And, oh, it was horrible. People were building, you know, fallout shelters. Um, so anyways, there was a lot of hatred towards the Soviet Union. And uh, my parents, you know, my father was Hungarian, so it had been a Hungarian revolution, you know, uh, an abortive revolution. The Soviet troops came in. So neither of my parents uh, seemed particularly fond of the Soviets, which seemed uh, a little odd to me because I, I had learned by then that uh, I wouldn't even be around if it wasn't for, for the Soviet army. Uh, so I, I became very fascinated in uh, everything Russian, everything Soviet, and I started reading about them uh, in, in high school. And, and my interest actually carried on into my adult life. Now, uh, I never became a historian. Uh, I'm a criminal justice specialist. Uh, funny thing happened to me during, uh, again, in high school, I, I got rather taken by a TV program. Uh, do you remember Charlie Chan, the famous detective? I know of him. I don't think I ever watched his stuff. Yeah, well, I, I got to watching him, and I, I just became fascinated. I, I just thought he was terrific. And um, I became interested in uh, detective work. And um, I wound up in Vietnam. I, I went to Vietnam, you know, did, did my time there. And when I came back, I uh, finished up college and um, uh, I became a federal agent. Uh, I joined uh, ATF, now known as the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives. And I had a nice long career with them. I uh, retired in 98. Um, along the way, I, I realized uh, that uh, I would eventually want to teach. So I took uh, a three-year break in service and... Uh, got my Ph.D. in criminal justice uh, at the State University of New York at Albany, which has uh, a wonderful criminal justice program. And then when I retired in 98, uh, I, um, I became a lecturer over at uh, California State University of Fullerton. Uh, and I've been there since. And when you were in, um, I mean, you had a career, obviously, in U.S. law enforcement. And when did you transition to studying Soviet justice? Well, uh, that was in 98. When I retired in 98 and, and joined the faculty over at uh, Cal State Fullerton, uh, I had the opportunity to kind of return to my youthful obsession, you might say. And um, I wanted to teach a course on, on Soviet justice because, again, criminal justice is my field. And... Um, I thought uh, that uh, the Moscow show trials would be a, uh, you know, a, a pretty obvious starting point. So I began designing a course in uh, Soviet justice that uh, uh, dealt with uh, the show trials. And you mentioned that you use um, fiction or at least drama in in your course in the Soviet in the Soviet criminal justice course. Right. Um, I have been writing screenplays on the side, and uh, I've become uh, rather interested in fiction. And I also realized that uh, my students, uh, none of my students were history majors. They were criminal justice majors, and uh, they, they would go on to careers in corrections, law enforcement, what have you. Uh, but I wanted to give them a more organic understanding of uh, the craziness of, of that period of time. And um, so I, I decided to uh, inject uh, uh, some fiction into it. So during the first half of the semester, uh, we took a conventional historical approach, talked about the context of the era and how is it that these crazy show trials came about. And by the way, it wasn't just the show trials of the 30s. There was a whole series of show trials uh, starting with Lenin. And uh, during the second half of the course, uh, I wrote a script. Students actually performed it and uh, taking on roles from uh, some of the uh, witnesses and defendants and even the prosecutors uh, uh, during the show trials. And we performed it for the university. 
Uh, it was a lot of fun. And uh, uh, the students, I, I, I got some feedback from the students saying that uh, it, it certainly gave them a different perspective on, on what had taken place. Uh, it was not an experience that they would soon forget. No, I think that's very interesting. And although I I really want to get into talking about your book, I also would like you to start out just by explaining for our listeners a little bit about what the show trials were and particularly what the show trials from 36 to 38 were, because I know, of course, as a Russian scholar, but I think it's probably not as well known now as it used to be when the Soviet Union was much more front page news. Well, uh, by the early 30s, um, Stalin had pretty well firmed up his rule, uh, at least in everyone else's mind, if not, you know, in his own. And um, I think uh, one of his motives was to uh, try to rid himself of those who had uh, previously opposed him. And um, he had exiled uh, Trotsky. Uh, who was his real, really sole opponent back in uh, 1929, yet uh, he was still stuck with a lot of people in the party who had uh, taken, uh, who had been with Trotsky at a time when doing so was uh, perfectly legal. And uh, some of these people uh, were in fairly high positions and were they were not so easily gotten rid of. So one of the functions of the show trials was to uh, justify uh, their liquidation. Yeah, and this is interesting, really. I mean, the fact that he felt that he needed to justify it. I mean, he was eliminating people. The, the numbers vary, and people haven't exactly decided how many people he eliminated, but he was definitely eliminating people by the thousands. So... The fact that he felt that he had to justify these, the elimination of these particular figures is interesting, I think. It suggests a certain cast of mind. Yeah, it, it was a complex era. Uh, historians uh, call it um, the Great Terror uh, of the 1930s. What was happening in the provinces was, uh, I think, eventually got out of Stalin's control. Um, the Great Show Trials of 36, 37, and 38... Uh, focused on several dozen uh, people who were uh, members of the party, uh, you know, in in Moscow, and they were it, many of them were at fairly high levels of the party. Uh, the thousands that you refer to, and it's probably more like tens of thousands, were uh, officials and minor officials in the provinces. Uh, and I think Stalin uh, feared that uh, many of them. Uh, their loyalty was not to him, but their loyalty was rather to provincial uh, folks. And many of them had in the past um, uh, followed uh, Trotsky's line uh, much more than uh, than his. And, and I think at a certain point, the uh, liquidations in the provinces got completely out of hand. There was a competition among the secret services for how many people they could liquidate. And careers were being built uh, on such things. Uh, so I, that's the context for the greater, you know, the, the greater problem of, of the terror. Um, my, uh, my book focuses on uh, the show trials of 36 to 38, which were uh, focused more on the uh, upper uh, stratum uh, folks that uh, Stalin didn't trust who were in high uh, positions and uh, whom uh, he wanted to permanently uh, put out to pasture. So, yeah, let's talk about your book at this point. Your book focuses, on, it tells the story by focusing on one character, Vladimir Rom, who was um, Izviestia's first correspondent to Washington, D.C., and a Soviet spy. Um, I don't know if it was widely acknowledged at the time. I'm sure it was known, and we didn't have a CIA then, but the equivalent. And but in certainly in the book, it's it's quite explicitly stated. So in some way, he is a character that Americans might find difficult to relate to. But on the other hand, he's in a really sticky position that he hasn't really deserved. And so in that sense, he's a sympathetic character. Can you tell us a little bit about the 
the plot of the book without necessarily giving away the ending. Um, but just talk about how he fits into this larger picture of the 37 show trial and also why you focused on the 37 trial rather than the 36 or the 38, for example. Well, I'm not a uh, trained historian. I'm a criminal justice specialist. So when I, I first decided to uh, write about the show trials, I realized that uh, there were layers and layers of context that one would have to uh, provide. So um, I tried to find a path uh, through, you know, this, you know, quagmire. And um, while reading the transcripts of the show trials, the 36, 37, and 38 show trials, the, there are actually full transcripts of the 37 and 38 trials. Uh, the 36 trial, there's a summary partial transcript. Now, when I say transcript also, I mean really script, because obviously these were completely staged uh, fictional events. Uh, anyways, while reading through them, I, I started looking for uh, characters who I, I could use to kind of transport the reader or through the era, and while at the same time helping, you know, guide me. And um, in the 1937 show trial, I found something very interesting uh, as a criminal justice person. Um, I noticed that there was one so-called witness, and that's in quotation marks, for each of the five days of uh, testimony. And uh, the function of these so-called witnesses, they were not actually themselves charged in the trial, was to corroborate the confessions of the principal defendants. Now, one might think, well, why do you need somebody to corroborate, you know, these confessions? Well, what had happened in the 1936 trial, uh, where there were uh, 16 defendants, is that all of the defendants took the stand, and uh, they all confessed one right after the other, and not just, you know, by simply saying, well, I'm guilty, I did it, but uh, elaborately very volubly and uh, with apparently great, uh, great uh, sincerity. And uh, two of these characters, the, the two principal defendants uh, in that uh, trial uh, also happened to be um, people whom uh, Stalin, uh, who had been, uh, in the triumvirate uh, with Stalin when uh, Lenin was uh, indisposed. He was uh, shot and severely wounded. I believe it was 1924, and a triumvirate was created. And uh, the members of this triumvirate were uh, Stalin, uh, a fellow by the name of Kamenev, and a fellow by the name of Zinoviev. Well, Kamenev and Zinoviev were the two principal defendants in the uh, 1936 trial, and uh, they also got up there on the stand and uh, confessed, and they too were shot. Well, there was a reaction around the world uh, to this trial that was not completely positive. It seemed like most of the world kind of bought it, kind of believed that, well, these folks got up there and confessed extensively. They, they must have plotted against Stalin. But... Uh, so, some of the uh, news people and some of the diplomats diplomats uh, were concerned that nearly all the evidence had come in through confession. So for the 1937 trial, uh, Bishinsky, uh, Stalin's prosecutor, uh, obviously decided that he would bring in so-called witnesses, uh, people who were not themselves charged, in order to corroborate the confession. So I had these five witnesses. And um, uh, one of the witnesses, uh, you know, with uh, Vladimir Rome, uh, the uh, inaugural correspondent to Washington in 1934-1936, uh, the other witnesses included a fellow by the name of Dmitry Bukartsev, and uh, he held an equivalent position to Rome in Berlin. He was correspondent to, uh, uh, to Germany. Uh, there was a fellow by the name of Loginov, and uh, Loginov um, was basically a bureaucrat. Uh, 
another uh, Soviet by the name of Leonid Tam and a uh, German expatriate uh, by the name of uh, Stein. They caught my attention and I started looking at him and I started thinking, gee, you know, maybe I can use one of these fellows or one of the Soviet, <clears throat> excuse me, Soviet ones to kind of transport us through this period. And uh, I looked into their backgrounds and I became just completely fascinated uh, by Vladimir Rome. Can you tell us something about his background? Well, uh, Rome uh, uh, was uh, born, uh, born in Russia, but um, he came from a very uh, famous uh, family, a family of printers, the Rome printers of Vilna. They were the preeminent uh, publishers of Jewish religious text in uh, 19th century Eastern Europe. And they're very well known, you know, in, in, in Jewish community. And uh, Vladimir was actually the grandson of the principal of the printing house, whose name was uh, David Rome. Vladimir Rome's father, George, um, was a very well-known uh, physician uh, in Vilna. <clears throat> so uh, Rome definitely came from what was called the uh, intelligentsia, you know, the, the upper intellectual uh, stratum. And, um, well... And he was born in Vilna, and uh, that also happens to be my mother's birthplace. So there was you know, a personal, kind of a personal connection uh, as well. It immediately uh, occurred to me when, when I discovered that, you know, Rome was, uh, was a Jew born in Vilna, that um, my, um, uh, my ancestors would have probably known the family because... Uh, you know, they were from uh, Vilna, and, uh, you know, the community, while large, wasn't that big. Um, so I got rather interested in him, uh, but I wasn't sure at that point whether or not he could adequately transport me through this whole era uh, that I wanted to describe. So I uh, asked a friend of mine, who's uh, an academic uh, in, in Eastern Europe, to uh, hit the Soviet archives and see... Uh, if he could find something about Vladimir Rome, because Vladimir Rome was, uh, you know, a middle-ranking Soviet official, and he was a member of the party. Uh, and sure enough, my friend did. You know, he got uh, Vladimir Rome's entire party files, uh, and he translated them for me, because I, I don't do Russian. I can barely read Cyrillic. So... Um, it became uh, apparent that Rome would just be uh, an excellent person to take us through uh, through the era. Uh, he had uh, been posted in the early 20s uh, in Russia. Uh, between 1927 and 1930, he was the task correspondent in Tokyo. Uh, he... Uh, uh, then went on to uh, Paris and Geneva. He was uh, a uh, Soviet correspondent to the League of Nations. Um, he uh, did some work in Paris and Germany. And then uh, eventually in 1934, he was posted as the inaugural uh, Soviet correspondent to uh, Washington. Yeah, he's quite a widely traveled guy. Um, your story, what's fascinating, I mean, the history itself is fascinating because these show trials are so much of a performance. They're so faked and they're so obviously fake that it's frankly interesting to me that the Stalin's government could even imagine that just bringing out witnesses to these incredible charges would somehow convince the world that the confessions were not made up. But um, the novel is interesting because it flips back and forth between Vladimir's arrest in um, the, and his imprisonment in the Lubyanka, which is the the main prison in Moscow where people were brought um, on political charges, and then but it then goes back and forth into his past, and and much of his past is factual. You even have an appendix at the back explaining what's factual and what's not, 
But some of the incidents are purely fictional, and when you're just reading through, there's no real way. I mean, it's very nicely blended, so there's no real way to distinguish what is fictional and what is not. You you start us off with an incident when Vladimir is a small boy in 1905, when, for those who don't know, there was the first, what's now called the first Russian Revolution, uh, which was not violent in the same way, but caused some major changes in the imperial system that then kept the country going for another 12 years until the second Russian Revolution in February 1917. But Vladimir doesn't start off as a Bolshevik. He's He actually starts off somewhat more to the agrarian side of things. Can you... Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit more about him as a young man? Uh, yes, and... Uh... You, you alluded to uh, my um, having this uh, appendix trying to distinguish fact from fiction. Um, I must admit that I began that in order to try to keep things uh, straight for myself, uh, because I, I did bring in a lot of uh, a lot of fact. But uh, although we had Vladimir's uh, party file, uh, the party file was mostly an account of his postings. I shouldn't even say an account. It just listed his postings. And uh, with one exception, there was very, very little information about what he actually did there. Um, and there was even less information about his uh, where he came from and about his family life. Um, so Vladimir's party uh, autobiography was also not very extensive. He, he talked about... Uh, being a member of the socialist revolutionaries. And in terms of his childhood, which is where the story begins, uh, he mentioned at one point that he did run messages for his brothers. And he put that in his party autobiography. And the, the reason I, I bring it out is because that was one of the few little facts that we had. And uh, I think to be honest about it, uh, I think Vladimir might have just thrown that in uh, just to make himself look better. Uh, it may be that, in fact, he did not run messages for his brothers, uh, as he claims. But his claim was good enough, and it gave me a good story to, uh, you know, to begin building the plot around. Right. And then he's a socialist revolutionary, which is... Um... It's also a very left-wing party, but they were more focused on the peasants, whereas in in the beginning, at least, the Bolsheviks were very focused on the working class, such as it was in Russia. But, yes. he, but he then becomes disillusioned with the socialist revolutionaries. Yes, and uh, now that you mention the socialist revolutionaries, you know, that uh, gave him a label that very likely helped lead to his uh, eventual downfall, you know, if, if that's what you call it. Yeah, the, the socialist revolutionaries were very much at odds with the Bolsheviks, uh, which is the party where Lenin and you know Stalin uh, came from. Um, and uh, there, uh, in fact, uh, the woman, Fanny Kaplan, who shot Lenin, was a uh, socialist revolutionary. Uh, so, uh, having been a socialist revolutionary, not a so-called original Bolshevik, uh, dogged uh, Rome uh, throughout his career. Uh, and it really came to a head uh, when he was posted in Tokyo, when he was actually called on the carpet uh, and uh, threatened with being kicked out of the Communist Party. Um, Do you see that as an early sign of of the kind of antagonism that later came out in the show trials? I'm trying to remember offhand exactly when he was in Tokyo, but it was in the late 20s, early 30s, right? Yes, it was, I think, 27 to 30. Mm-hmm. Well, the things were, I mean, that's when Stalin was consolidating his power in 27, 28, and that's when, the, in fact, the very first show trial was the Shakti trial in 1928, I think. Right, yeah. Uh, 
so there was, you know, uh, it's good that you mentioned it because there was a lot of this crazy stuff happening ahead of time. It's not as though the 36 to 38 show trials just fell from the sky. Uh, in fact, the very first show trial uh, that I know of was in 1922 under Lenin, and it was the trial of the socialist of the revolutionaries. the SRs, yeah, right, exactly. The, the, the socialist revolutionaries, the SRs. That's true. Even under Lenin, they were doing this. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. The whole idea of falsified show trials, uh, I mean, obviously it has a history, you know, beyond, you know, the Soviet Union, but at least in the Soviet uh, era, it began, uh, began under Lenin. It must be quite interesting for you with a background in law enforcement to look at a system of justice where the entire focus of the system is to prove people guilty, even if you know that they're innocent. Well, yeah, it was interesting. I wanted to do something because of my interest, you know, in the Soviet Union and Russia that was um, related to, you know, criminal justice. And um, some of my colleagues, you know, who were, they were very supportive, but they said, well, you know, these, these were really... Uh, Performances. They were theatrical performances. You know, uh, how how are they really crime and justice? And uh, is there any equivalent? Is there any comparison to the West? And I, I think there is. Uh, you, you know, uh, without trying to make too much of it, we we've had a whole litany of problems with wrongful convictions and false confessions right here in Western justice. And uh, many of the folks uh, involved uh, who were responsible and continue to be responsible for miscarriages of justice uh, in America were propelled by many of the same bureaucratic needs that uh, uh, members of the secret police and other services were propelled by, you know, under the uh, under Soviet rule. And one of them was to show accomplishments, you know, was to. uh, be able to brag about the numbers of people convicted. So there are parallels, uh, uh, and it, there are parallels particularly uh, among the ranks of the uh, lower-level actors, the ones who, you know, actually bring in the game. Now that's a very interesting point. I'm glad you brought that up um, because it is very tempting to look at another society and just say, well, that's them. Um, but of course it's hardly ever just them. And it's interesting to think about how it might be us too. Yes. And, and, and that's, um, that's an era that I, I think, um, uh, that's an issue that Americans find rather troubling to talk about. And I try to be delicate about it. Um, you know, I consider myself an American, but I, I do come from, a different place. And um, I tried uh, insofar as I could to kind of step out uh, of being an American and, and look back and um, try to express what I saw uh, uh, from a different perspective. Uh, and I, I hope I don't offend anyone by that. So. so let's get back to Vladimir for a minute, because despite his uh, SR past, he does manage to um, have quite a successful career until he falls foul of the, the system. And he goes to Japan, he goes to France, he goes to Switzerland, he goes to the United States, he's in Germany for a while. And he, um, he has a family. Um, he's not always faithful to his wife, but he seems to be faithful to her when she's around. And, um, and they have a child. And the child is um, diagnosed with something that, frankly, I had never heard of, of tuberculosis of the bone, which then becomes a theme in their travels. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, I discovered uh, about uh, Georgia's, uh, the name of their son, and uh, named after you know, Vladimir's father. And uh, I discovered that he had bone TB from uh, French uh, uh, police files. Uh, Once uh, uh, I had discovered that, you know, Vladimir had traveled all over the place, I began corresponding with archivists uh, throughout Europe. Oh, and they're fabulous uh, folks. Uh, 
they got me hundreds and hundreds of pages of stuff from uh, police archives in uh, Switzerland, uh, the Swiss Federal Police, from the French uh, police, from the German uh, Interior Ministry. It was uh, uh, really terrific. And uh, as I'm looking through all these documents, uh, I notice that uh, Rome and uh, his wife, her name was Galena, had uh, made several trips to a sanatorium uh, in France. Uh, and uh, the purpose for the trips, which is on the documents, was uh, for treatment for their son, Georgie, who uh, suffered from uh, tuberculosis of the ankle, uh, bone TB. Uh, now, this was an affliction that widely uh, was widely spread throughout Eastern Europe. And uh, I'll tell you, when I, when I saw that uh, French uh, uh, visa application and the reason for it, it really, really hit home because uh, my mother also suffered from bone TB. So oh, I went, wow. yeah. Yeah, uh, she uh, acquired it, best I know from uh, what my uh, dad told me. Um, they're both passed away now. Uh, she acquired it in the camps while in a concentration camp. But uh, TB was rampant in the, throughout Eastern Europe. And uh, when it settles in the bone, uh, uh, it's actually not necessarily as lethal as the TB that you know, will settle in your lungs, because when it settles in the bone, oftentimes it encapsulates, and it can encapsulate pretty much permanently. And uh, my mother uh, did not die from uh, from TB. So. But as a result, Georgie was crippled. Was your mother crippled also? Uh, no, not, not visibly. Oh, not from what I could tell. She died when I was, I think, 14. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, and uh, I don't actually remember where uh, where the TB had uh, settled in. But uh, for many folks who have bone TB, and I I had to study up on this, it's just simply something they live with for their entire lives, and um, they wind up living a fairly normal life. So. So this brings us, in a sense, to the kind of what I might call the central moral question of your book. Um, I know when I emailed you, I mentioned that I found Vladimir a surprisingly sympathetic character, even though he was a Soviet spy, because he's, you know, he's a Soviet, so he's working for his own government. He's as honorable in, in pursuit of his national interests as, say, James Bond is for the British or some his CIA counterpart is for the U.S. And um, you mentioned to me in response that, yes, but on the other hand, he profits from his position with the Soviet government. And one way that he profits is that he's able to secure privileges, including the treatment for his son and trips abroad and other things that, that normal Soviet citizens were not allowed to do. And then he... Despite having had a successful career and having, as far as we can tell, most of the time served the interests of his government, he finds himself arrested for, not even for a crime he doesn't commit, I mean, he hasn't really committed, but for, um, as part of this vendetta that Stalin has launched against people whom Stalin perceives as his enemy, and I wondered if you could talk about that a bit, because the question of the book seems to me to be, why does a person bear witness against other people that he knows to be false and that is going to incriminate himself because there's no Fifth Amendment in the Soviet Constitution? And how does that fit into the overall arc of his career? Rome uh, was, uh, by what I can tell, uh, a very loyal servant of the Soviet state. Uh, there were a number of uh, American correspondents who got to know him, uh, a couple in particular, and uh, both of them said that uh, at all times he comported himself uh, just like any other Soviet that was... Uh, Praise Stalin. Uh, 
demonstrated no nothing, absolutely nothing uh, that would uh, even hint uh, at uh, disloyalty. And um, so the best I can tell from uh, from the files and, you know, from what I've read uh, is that uh, it was a completely put up job as to Rome. And I looked into the backgrounds of the other witnesses to the extent that I could. And I came to the same conclusion as to the others. So uh, here we have essentially an innocent man or innocent of what he is being charged with. Uh, why did he turn around? I actually found that to be the simplest uh, question because he had no choice. You know, uh, He was locked up and he was either going to cooperate and talk uh, and basically read the script uh, or he was going to disappear forever and God for, knows what would happen to uh, his family. So from a practical standpoint, he had no choice. You know. uh, to me, the more um, intriguing question was the path that got him there. Why him and not someone else? Uh, and uh, I was never, and I don't think one could, but I certainly was never able to completely resolve uh, that question. He was certainly a convenient uh, became a very convenient person at uh, that point in time because uh, of the fellow that he testified against, Carl Roddick. And uh, he also had things to say that also uh, uh, bore on, uh, on, on Piatikov, the, the other main uh, defendant. Uh, Vyshinsky, the uh, prosecutor, had a problem. Uh, Radek and Piatikov, his principal defendants in the 37 trial, and indeed the defendants in the 36 and the 38 trial, the principal defendants were very well-known Soviets. So uh, how could they possibly communicate with this archenemy Trotsky, uh, who was supposedly the person behind the plot? Uh, because Trotsky had been exiled. He was running around Europe bad-mouthing Stalin. But uh, those, you know, were the days before email, you know. So uh, there was really no way for Trotsky and these principal defendants to communicate. Realistically, not even by mail, you know, because mail was very closely, you know, guarded. So um, the prosecutor needed somebody to act essentially as um, the errand boy. So... Uh, I think that the reason that Rome wound up where he did and the reason why Bukhartsev, uh, who was also a correspondent, did was because they were free to move around Europe. And in fact, they did move around Europe. So uh, they could be designated to have been the errand boys who ran messages between Trotsky, uh, who was in Europe, and um uh, and uh, the conspirators, Radek, Yarakov, and the rest of them uh, in the Soviet Union. So uh, I, I think, you know, I think that kind of answers that. Now, why specifically Rome? Why specifically Bukharsev? Certainly there were other correspondents. Sure, you know, there were. Uh, but uh, when the coin got flipped, it uh, came up tails for Rome. And uh, that's what happened to him. Incidentally, though, I uh, I don't uh, I don't think that's the only thing that I was you know trying to resolve in my book. Um, I was trying to describe an era uh, that ended with this you know crazy you know uh, with these crazy trials. I was trying to uh, illustrate what had gone on uh, to hopefully, in part, try to explain why the trials came about. And uh, in another sense, I was doing what I think you just alluded to, was trying to um, uh, give a, uh, a moral story about the moral development and the contradictions that a mid-level servant uh, of the Soviet state uh, got involved in in something that I think was quite common uh, in which contributed uh, 
to the trials happening because without cooperative mid-level and low-level uh, servants, uh, the show trials could never have taken place. Well, also, from what I recall, I mean, what got Vladimir into trouble in Japan was that he was, in a sense, not being cooperative enough. He would go to people and they would say, oh, it's great to have a civil servant who gives us his real opinion. But then they'd turn around and they'd say, but now you're not spouting the party line, in effect. Um, you know, uh, the French uh, French intelligence files and I say this because I'm not sure how completely reliable they were, but the French police uh, said that Rome uh, just barely got out of Tokyo without himself getting arrested. I guess the authorities in Japan felt that Rome was much more a spy than a journalist, which, of course, uh, he was. Um, so I'm not exactly sure what really happened in Japan uh, why uh, the party felt it necessary to bring Rome to task uh, and to basically force him to uh, reassert his complete loyalty to Stalin. I think it probably has uh, something to do with what you mentioned in that these were, uh, this was a period when Stalin was just trying to cement his hold on the party and the party was going through these periodic purges, and I think Rome just got involved in one. But I think Rome, uh, even though Rome got involved in the purge and uh, uh, apparently squeaked through and, and remained, uh, obviously remained in the party, uh, I think he was probably doing a very good job for the Soviets in Japan to the extent that he could. Again, being an intelligence officer in a country where everybody looks different from you, is uh, is very difficult, and he probably did the best he could. Um, so his troubles with the party in Japan were probably more a function of what you mentioned earlier: the uh, fact that the purges were on in the late uh, in the late twenties. One of the um, things I thought about when I was reading your book is Yevgenia um, Ginsburg's journey into the whirlwind. There's she was a mid-level. Um, academic, actually, in Kazan, and her husband, I think, was a mid-level bureaucrat, and they got swept up in the 36 to 38 purges for the reasons that you were mentioning earlier, which is basically that the locals had a quota and they needed to fill a certain number of slots, and so they, they picked her, her up. And she, you know, there was some past that she had been on the wrong side of the Pokrovsky debate or something, but she... Um, the the thing I remember most from her story is how surprised she was and that the sense that she had that even though these purges have been going on for much of a decade, it more or less um, severely, I mean, they got worse as the decade went on. But even so, until it happened to her, she really believed at some level that the government was giving her straight information and that these other people were enemies of the people. And it was only when they picked up her husband and herself that she's starting to realize that none of these people were enemies of the people. And I'm wondering how much of a factor you think that was in what happened to Vladimir, because he could have stayed in Washington if he had had any suspicion that he was going to be pulled into this when he went back to Moscow. Yeah, I, I think you really nailed it. I, the self, uh, these folks were uh, deceiving themselves, and um, but one can see why. Their entire careers or their lives revolved around a system that they had known all along was fundamentally corrupt. And they made their way through the system, you know, benefiting to the extent that they could. And we're not just speaking one or two people. We're speaking, you know, you know masses and masses of servants of the Soviet state. And they knew that Everything was rotten in Denmark, and uh, yet, uh, for personal reasons and professional reasons, they uh, slogged on. Um, and, of course, they had to neutralize some of their worst uh, fears. They had to look the other way. And um, as, I, um, as I proceeded on, you know, and as during my writing, which took several years, 
that actually became, uh, to me, the most important thread, if you will, of the novel. And um, in fact, it became so important that um, I started throwing hints throughout that you might have seen about Vladimir having some self-doubt and then going, no, 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 everything will be okay, and even, even in prison. Uh, and I, I actually created uh, another character to represent myself. And I won't give up who that character is, but uh, I created another character to act kind of as a sounding board. Uh, because I do feel that uh, if, if we want to uh, avoid repeating such horrible tragedies, uh, it's not just done at the top levels. We, we have to look at ordinary people, what motivates ordinary folks, what drives them, what their needs are, uh, because they're the ones who uh, are either going to neutralize their own uh, moral apprehensions or not. Uh, and if they don't, things like these, uh, like the trials, could never, ever happen. Well, on that note, I think uh, we've taken up a great deal of your time, and I do appreciate your talking to us. Um, can you give us a sense, are you continuing to write fiction, do you think, or are you going to, uh, what are you working on now? Well, right now I'm working on something completely different uh, because of, uh, you know, the events uh, uh, the shootings and whatnot surrounding gun control. And I spent my whole, you know, professional career uh, in a firearms agency. Um, I've begun, uh, I've returned to that and I'm, I'm writing in that, uh, in that field. And yes, I, I'm, I'm going to, uh, I, I'm writing about some experiences I had. I'm probably going to fictionalize them and hopefully I'll come out with something that, um, you know, uh, is useful, uh, not just, uh, you know, not just, you know, to read and uh, for pleasure, but hopefully might be useful from a policymaking standpoint as well. The, the tragedies, you know, the, uh, the tragedies that we've had recently with the misuse of firearms have really kind of consumed our country and, uh, we need answers, and if I can contribute in some way, then, you know, I'd be happy to. That's excellent. Yes, we could do a whole other show on that. So when you, if you do end up writing another novel about that, you know where to reach us, and we'll be happy to have another discussion. And I wish you all the best. Thank you for spending time with us today. All right. Thanks a lot. All right. Take care. Goodbye, Jay. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, host of New Books in Historical Fiction, and today I've been talking with Julius Watchtell, author of Stalin's Witnesses. You can find out more about him at www.stalinswitnesses.com. Goodbye for now, and thank you for listening to New Books in Historical Fiction.